Read along with me if you would, please. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat. Ox, sheep, goat, deer, gazelle, roe deer, and wild goat, mountain goat, antelope, and the mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hooves split in two parts, and that chews the cud among the animals. Nevertheless, or not nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves like one or the other, you shall not eat, such as these camel, the hare, the rock rock hyrax, for they chew the cud but do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean to you. Also the swine is unclean for you, because it has cloven hooves, and yet does not chew the cud. You shall not eat the flesh or touch their dead carcasses. These you may eat that are in the waters. You may eat all that has fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It's unclean to you. All clean birds you may eat, but these you shall not eat. Eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the red kite, the falcon, the kite after its kind. Every raven after its kind, the ostrich, short-eared owl, seagull. I know that probably breaks your heart. So, oh, there goes lunch. The hawk after its kind, little owl, screech owl, white owl, jackdaw, carrion vulture. And if you think, oh, that's going to change everything. <clears throat> the fish owl, the stork, because after all, if you eat that, where are the new baby Israelites going to come from? The heron after its kind, and of course, the hoopoe and the bat. Also, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. You may eat all clean birds, but you shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates. And of course, that means somebody who's not Jewish, not somebody from like Pluto. And then you may eat it and then you may sell it to the foreigner for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. You shall not eat before the Lord. I'm sorry, and you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and the new wine and your oil, of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the journey is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, well, when the Lord your God has blessed you, well, then you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand, and go to the place in which the Lord your God chooses, and you shall spend that money on whatever your heart desires, ox, sheep, wine, or similar drink, or whatever your heart desires, and you shall eat it before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates, and the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, And the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gate may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. You pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for the way that you reach out and speak to us. Thank you for the sheer, beautiful, magnificent profundity of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would do all the work your word is intended to do to teach and equip, to save, to challenge, exhort, equip. Do all those things, God, and may we have so much fun in your word. I pray you would captivate us for every second of this, that there would be no moment wasted. And Lord, that now you would do exactly what you desire. Interface with us, engage us. Open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to your truth. And may we hear you now, I pray. Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit that you would be seen, not me. Come upon me in such a way, Lord, that you would do what no human can do. That you would minister, bespoke to each of us now. Have your way, I pray, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I would say today as I would any day, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume, assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. In preparation for taking the land God has promised, and that's where we're at now, is sort of a locker room speech prior to Moses' death and prior to the people then assuming this place that God has promised them, this land across the Jordan. Before us is the Jordan, a river that overflows its banks in the spring. And we are looking at a place we had failed 38 years ago. And now... God doesn't want us to do that again. He didn't want us to do it last time either. But this chapter is so much more than just, well, now that you're going to go into this place, don't eat bats. This chapter starts by giving us our identity. And I want you to recognize that identity is paramount. How I see myself will govern my priorities, my values, my goals, my ambitions, my behavior, the way I treat others. How I genuinely see myself will change everything. Unfortunately, when you hear many testimonies, it sounds like the identity is still drawn much from where you once were and not who you are now. When Jesus sits and Matthew 5, and begins to teach. We read in the end of chapter 4, after disciples had been called, that these fishermen who had known how to cast their nets low and drag in all the fish and let the fishermen sort through them, now that's exactly what Jesus is doing. The fishermen are casting their nets low and they're bringing in everything. The powerless, the possessed, the paralyzed. Every human being of every kind of need represented, brought to Jesus. And he was the mindset for ministry. If I could get him to Jesus, he could fix him. That was it. It's amazing how effective that ministry is over any other ministry. If I can get you to Jesus, he's your creator. He's the the great physician. I know he knows how to fix you. And so there up on a mountain on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, just north of it. Thousands of crutches and chains and cots will no longer be needed. Oh, they were used perhaps to get them to Jesus. But now they'll never be needed again. And when Jesus sits down and begins to teach, he doesn't begin to teach by saying, now think of what you once were. He begins with the word, blessed. You see, before that point, all we knew was I was the maniac. I was the menace. I was the crazy person. I was the floozy. I was the violent. I was the addict. I was the whatever. And what happens is somewhere when I come to Jesus, and I know Scripture says that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. I know that. But somehow that's almost like a bolt-on to the current, you know, the current contract instead of a whole new program altogether. And so all of a sudden, now what I am is I'm an ex-addict. I'm an ex-violent person, an ex-crazy person, an ex-whatever. But what am I? That's just that's getting my identity from my tombstone. Jesus sits and says, if you don't recognize you're blessed, you're not going to move forward with me. In this chapter, please hear me, it's simple. If I really am what God tells me in this chapter, and if we could embrace these things with more than just an intellectual description, but I mean really in our hearts, and go, whoa, wait a minute, if I really am this, it will change. Verses 1 and 2, how I see death. Verses 3 through 21, the way that I view life. Verses 22 through 29, then how I treat his servants. How I view others. How I view death, how I view life, and how I view others. That's really the chapter. Notice how the chapter starts. Verse 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. Now there are counterfeits that are out there waving their banners, posting their signs. And one of them would be, and I'm going to go straight for it, God has no children. He has no sons. I mean, that is written from a man who's abandoned his family, and I need you to know that. 
But I want you to recognize scripturally from the very beginning to the end, my God is an adopting God. He's never not been. Adam was called a son of God. That's what it tells us in Luke chapter 2, by the way. Chapter 3, actually, at the end of it. When people start talking about the sons of God and the sons of men and how crazy people go with that, you need to recognize Adam was called a son of God. And I kind of get the idea there that Adam was a son of God because of adoption. It tells us, by the way, in John chapter 1, verse 12, that as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. It tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, that the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Now, you need to recognize something, that not everybody is a child of God. God wants everyone to be a child of God, but that's your choice now, not his. The offer is his. The option is yours. It tells us in Romans 8.15, you didn't receive again the spirit again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, not excuse me, sir, but daddy. Abba still is used today by any little Hebrew boy in Israel. You'll see them, Abba, 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 Abba and Ima, Abba and Ima, Ima's mom. Understand This is not the kind of father that is distant and cold and aloof and uncaring and uninvolved. And I understand why the enemy has worked so hard to destroy families. For many here, the word father is something to get over. It is almost a word that you wish that a new word would have been invented. Because the father that you had was a sperm donor, but no father. Was a distant lawmaker, a government official, in essence, in the household. But not the one that Scripture would call us to be. Paul, by the way, when he speaks about the Thessalonians, he says, I treated you like a children, like a father does his children. And Paul get the, gets, the, I get the idea of what a father looks like from that. It was life-changing for me, by the way. He said, he charged and he warned and he comforted. Charged them that they would live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, please understand, I was one of those people that the word was a little loosely defined by me. I were coming from my own background. And when my wife told me that she was pregnant, I was confronted with, well, how, what kind of father am I going to be? So I dug through Scripture. I went through the entire Bible. started in Genesis, and the Lord showed me what a father looks like. And it got all the way to 1 Thessalonians, where I realized that was the part where God nailed me. And he said, look at who do you know that's done that in your life? And I said, well, I've had coaches that have challenged me to, great, to greatness, to, to live beyond mediocrity, that have called me out when I was slacking, but comforted in those moments when they were necessary. He says, can you be that? I says, through you, Lord, I could be anything. I want you to recognize that scripturally, God adopts. And as he adopts, He would like you to be his child. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you need to know that there is a price for you. You don't come cheap. Our second daughter, some of you may have guessed, of course, some of you just know, she's adopted. She didn't come cheap. But even if you've had children biologically, let's be honest, they don't come cheap either. And once they come, you don't stop paying for them then either. You know that. But I want you to recognize that the cost to adopt you was the cost of his only son, his only begotten son. Begotten, by the way, monogenes literally means one gene. Anybody that tries to play that and tell you that Jesus couldn't be God because he's the only begotten doesn't understand the word. He's the only son from God's gene pool. By virtue, that makes him of the same species. We have two daughters. One of them is from my gene pool. You could pray for her just for that alone. And there's another one that's not. But they're both just as much daughters as the other. And they're very much sisters to each other. And God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross because that was the price that was to be paid for you to have the option of adoption. But the choice is yours. 
He's done everything but one thing, and that is usurp your choice. But let's say today, if you haven't yet, and you'll be given that choice, by the way, at the end of this, to say yes to Jesus, to say yes to that gift and say, Father, adopt me then. It tells us, by the way, that if you are children of this God of life, that it should change everything. Because I am a child of the God of life, I must view death differently. Look at these verses with me, by the way. It tells us here in verse 1, because this, I mean, and notice it's sort of a cause and effect. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. Now understand, God is not saying if you've got one of those caterpillar unibrows, you know, one of those things that look like it just crawled on your face and it's like that. He didn't say you can't like cut that middle part here to try to, for, for vanity purposes. You're afraid that if you kind of wave, wave your eyebrows too far, you actually fan someone over. Well, God says you can do that. That's not the point. The point is, is that through several cultures that do not view death the way God views death, that have no real perspective of eternity, death is the end all. In parts of Central America to this day, if you lost a loved one, you cut off the digit of your finger. You can see how many relatives, close relatives, you've lost. By all you have to do is wave. At which point you kind of go, wow, you've really had a hard life. There are places in South America where at the loss of a mother, father, brother, sister, or child, they carve into your sides. And each one of those with different beads for each type of uh, relative. A person that starts to look like a candy cane on the side of them because it doesn't heal well is a person that's clearly had a rough life. And you bear the scars from these things. Because in the end of it all, the idea of it is simple. That, and you, you kind of hear it. You ever go to one of those funerals where you kind of know that there really isn't a lot of good things to say, but you don't want to say, oh, the guy was a real jerk, and boy, is he glad he's gone. Because that would be irreverent, right? So, so someone tries to say something nice. And, it's like, and they go, oh, I just know he's kind of here with us now. And, and, and when it, for some people, that makes them uncomfortable because he wasn't that nice when he was here in the first place. And you kind of say those things because you just like want, to, you want some kind of comfort there. So you just make something up. But God says that should never be the case with you. Listen, listen closely to me, please. And again, don't just believe what I say. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority to which all things are tested and proven right or wrong. But please hear me in this. When God said to Adam, on the day that you eat this, mut tamut in the Hebrew, it literally means you'll die dying. On the day that you eat of this fruit, you're dead. Interesting, because when we read the scripture, of course, he eats, he bites into this fruit, and then he lives like another 900 years. So one of two things is either the case, either God was joking or lying, or God's view or definition of death is different than ours. And that becomes a problem. See, Adam would bite of that fruit. But from that day on, the intimacy that he once possessed with God is gone. But isn't that how we kind of understand death in a physical sense? Why do we weep over someone we love when they've passed away? We weep over them because we've lost our relationship. That's the point. That's what hurts. Is we can speak, but they don't speak back. We can plan, but they won't fulfill those plans. We can plot and dream and hope, but it really isn't going to make a difference because we know that it isn't going to be fulfilled. And that's the point with God. Because when we're spiritually dead, the same thing happens. He speaks, but we don't listen. And He plans, but we won't fulfill. And He wants, but we won't step into that role because He wants it so desperately, but... The relationship isn't there. And I want you to recognize every time that we feel that kind of pain, that's what God God grieves and feels for every person who's not said yes to Him. Is that you today? And I'm not here to guilt you into anything. The good news is guilt is what brings you to the cross. The cross is what brings you out. My whole life has been that way. We've watched death. I've watched family members die from as old as I was remembered. And I remember from the moment I was able to think my mom was getting more and more weak and more and more weak until ultimately on my February, when I was 11, she passed away. She gave in to the cancer she had been fighting her whole life for. And that was the beginning of a whole series of events 
best friend after best friend, neighbor after neighbor. Some of you are familiar with that world. And you get to this point where you just go, you know, it's almost like you develop a switch. It's like you could be nice to people, but if they're gone, you kind of hit it, and they're like just they're done, and you move forward. And, and it's like a, it's a it's a survival tactic. I'm not saying it's good. And then I gave my life to the God of Life. I accepted the gift of Jesus, and He adopted me, and everything changed. But not for the first couple of years. For the first couple of years, to be honest, I lived a lot like an orphan. The first couple of years I lived like, you know, when an orphan does, he survives, right? He works the streets. He does what he has to to get what he needs to get. And here I was adopted by the king of kings. But that doesn't mean I had to live that way. Until I opened up this beautiful book. And the moment I opened this beautiful book up that we know as the Bible, I started seeing who he really was. Not the guy I wanted to make up. Cause, and I realized, no matter how creative I thought I could be, I could never invent this guy. He was infinitely better in every way. It's like, if you really are my children, then where I am, there's life. Now listen, there are people in Scripture that understood this. Even though I want you to recognize there are people on the other hand who didn't. In Leviticus 19, God told them not to make cuttings for the dead Tattoo marks on them. Now understand, God is not here to say you're going to hell if you put a tattoo and it's got scripture on it. The idea was you were tattooing yourself for the dead. As if it were somehow of benefit to them. In 1 Kings, many of you are familiar with chapter 18 when Eliyahu, Elijah, takes on the prophets of Baal. If you remember, when they are trying to contact their false god, how they cut themselves, gouge themselves with lances until their blood gushed out. It was a manner to reach their god. But it says no one heard, no one spoke, no one listened. It tells us in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 6, that both great and small die in the land. They shall not be buried Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, or make themselves bald for them. There's that same thing that he says here. But listen. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when Paul is speaking to those Thessalonians, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And the idea is quite simple. The body you have is just going to be thrown into the ground, but your spirit's elsewhere. It tells us to be absent of the bodies, to be present with Christ. Lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. The difference, by the way, is that there's always hope for anyone who is, who is part of your family now in Christ. That's why Jesus would say, whoever believes in me, though he died, he would never really die. Oh, physically, sure, he'll hand in this body. Praise God, by the way. I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I wouldn't have wanted to give up the body so quickly. But as I get older, I'm much more ready to retire this jersey. And by the time I probably do, I guarantee you no one else is going to be able to use it. I think even the worms are going to go look and go, I think we better go elsewhere. It was Job that understood that even when his skin was destroyed, he knew this, that in his flesh he would see God. That was Job 19.26. I think of David. When, and, I, and please understand, if you've ever lost a loved one, especially a baby, David understood. David's wife was going to lose her boy. And David was fasting and he was grieving until he found out that the child was gone. And in 2 Samuel 12:23 he says this, but now that he's dead, why should I fast? Which by the way, some churches need to recognize once you're dead, there's not no matter how many candles you light or how much you give to a church, it's not going to make a difference. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. This is your time. He says, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. He shall not return to me. What David knew is that that baby that he never got to see face to face living was waiting for him when he saw the Lord. I want you to know my God has children waiting 
for some of you. The idea is simple. That doesn't mean we don't grieve the pain of losing that relationship. The only difference is it's not goodbye, it's see you later. In some cultures, in some words, it's different, right? I mean, we say goodbye and that's kind of it. Literally, that's a contraction of God be with you. You're probably aware of that, right? But in some cultures, there is sort of like a short-term goodbye and a long-term goodbye, right? A bientôt, au revoir. Au revoir is like, we're gone. A bientôt is like, see you later, man. Shalom, goodbye. Le hitrot. See you later, man. I want you to recognize, for the world, when somebody passes, it's goodbye. That's what it is. For us that know the Lord, for those who know the Lord that we see passing, it's see you later. And that is grieving with hope. Notice he doesn't say that we shouldn't grieve. He just says that we wouldn't grieve without hope. Oh, I know that there are people I love. One of my assistant pastors up in Chico before we moved to plant the work in Central California passed away from leukemia. And I remember looking at him and thinking, man, I'll see you later. He says, look, if you're going to be a child of the king, you need to view death differently. Because it tells us, by the way, Jesus taught us, don't fear the one who can throw that body in the grave. Be concerned more with the one who has authority over the soul. You can cast it way worse places than that grave is going to go. There is a temporary death and there is a permanent death. And because I belong to and have adopted by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Almighty, the God of life, I do not look at this world the same way. And I don't look at you the same way either. I am much more concerned for your eternity. Beloved, what if the church was really infected by that alone? Would say this person's hungry, this person needs clothing, this person is homeless, this nation has gone through some tragedy, and you look and you go, well, let's not just slap a band-aid on it eternally. Let's not just take a plaster and say, well, let's just make you feel better for the moment. Let's make sure we bring eternity into this thing. Because the last thing I want is for you just to have another day to say that person was nice, but stand before God without the hope of the choice that we should have given you. And then in verse 2, he moves to our second area. When you're adopted, everything changes. Verse 2, notice it says, and we, by the way, it'll pick up when we start going to the, the menu here, because obviously that's much more elaborated in, in Leviticus 11. But it says in verse 2, because, for is because, you're a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, wait a minute, what? Does God love the Jew more than the rest of the world? No. I mean, I know that intrinsically, but it looks like that. And I go, well, wait a minute here. Holy, I remind you, means set apart. Unique, different. We could even say weird. But I want to make clear, scripturally does not say holy from. It says holy to. And there's the difference, beloved. You see, what makes you set apart is not what you're away from. It's who you belong to. There are over a billion and a half children in the world right now, but two of them belong to me. They are set apart. They may do a lot of what the rest of the children in the world do. They may have the same struggles, the same battles, the same intellectual conscriptions, uh, granted, they'll put in the context of wherever they live, but they're human beings. I recognize that. And what sets them apart is not, first and foremost, what they don't do. It's who they belong to. They are holy unto me. They are set apart unto me because they're mine. They're my children. And that's what makes it beautiful. There are over three and a half billion women in the world. But I'm married to one. Only have ever been married to one. Same one. Over 25 years, same girl. That isn't changing. Ladies, with all due respect, as beautiful and as nice as you want to be, you ain't my wife. That's the good news, for your sake too. She is set apart. Not because of what she doesn't do, first and foremost, but because of who she belongs to. And because of that, there's more to this particular text from which the rest of this will bounce off of, but you need to recognize, you too, 
are unique. If you've said yes to Jesus Christ, you've been adopted by the Father, and that makes you in a whole unique category from the rest of the world who hasn't. You're His. You belong to Him. And because you belong to Him, there is a whole special attitude that goes that way. There is a whole special calling that comes with that. Because if you understood who you are in this God, it should revolutionize everything from the way that you view things to what you want to do. In Exodus 12, it was a holy Sabbath to the Lord. In Exodus 30, it was the atonement sacrifice holy to the Lord, most holy to the Lord. For the high priest that stood there, he wore a band. In Exodus 39, holiness to the Lord. For the Nazarite in number six, when he made his vow, he was holy and set apart to the Lord. And it says in Isaiah 43, verse one, now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, because I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name. My favorite words, you are mine. Do you mind being called? Mine by God? Mine. Though my children are my children, that doesn't mean they don't have a mind of their own. Oh, ain't that the case. But please understand, what would it be like if I actually could just really honestly grasp that I'm a child of the Almighty, set apart to my Lord, And then he says these two things. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself. Now you're aware of the fact that when he chooses, he chooses for purpose. Under any other context, it would work. If I were to say, Christian, I choose you, he would be wise to say, what for? If I were to say, David, I choose you, he'd be like, what for? I just say to Jeffrey, Jeffrey, I choose you. You would be wise to ask. So understand when God says, I choose you as a people unto myself, there's a purpose behind that. But you know that in any adoption, you carry on the family honor, a dishonor, and the family occupation. So what's my dad's occupation? Well, creator, but I can't really do much for that. Or can I? His goal, his mission, his job is to seek, serve, and save the least, the last, and the lost. He says, now, let's go about the family business. Let's get life to the dead. Let's give hope to the hopeless. Let's give strength to the weak. Let's give comfort to the discouraged. Because that's what we do in this family. And I'm setting you apart. And I'm choosing you for purpose to be a special treasure. Of all the doctors in the world, the one that served my daughter when she was unconscious, hit by a vehicle, was my favorite. Of all the doctors in the world, he was uniquely treasured because of his impact on my family. Of all the doctors in the world, the one that served my daughter, my other daughter, when she was on death's door, is my favorite. Because of all the doctors in the world, he had an impact on my family like no other. And that's why you're a unique special treasure. Because of what you will do, how he will use you to impact those he loves. That's what makes it. It isn't because he looks and goes, oh, I really love you and I, oh, I really don't like that person at all. He has a love for you because of what, the way he's going to use you. And if you could know that, there's a unique bespoke ministry just for you. You can't have my ministry. It's already taken. You can have your ministry. I don't want to be Billy Graham. I don't want to be Chuck Smith, especially since he's passed away. But 
what I want to be is what Christ has called me to be. This is what it tells us in 1 Peter 2.9. You're a chosen generation. Now he's speaking to Christians. Look at those words. Chosen generation, royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He says, I've got a calling on your life. I, the dark world out there needs to know. It won't be dark when you walk in there. You're the light of the world, and you need to proclaim how that light came. So, I'm a child of the Almighty. I'm set apart unto my Lord. I am chosen for purpose now and uniquely treasured. Uniquely. Me, uniquely treasured. Gina, uniquely treasured. Shirley, uniquely treasured. Charlene, uniquely treasured. Uh, you know, that's the whole point. Ashley, uniquely treasured. That's the point. Sam, uniquely treasured. Amina, uniquely treasured. Not just you as a batch are going to be uniquely treasured. Daniel, uniquely treasured. Hugo, uniquely treasured. That's the point. So I have a unique treasure for each of you. I have two daughters. They're both my favorite daughters. They're both uniquely treasured. Neither wins, or they both do. You're uniquely treasured. And because of that, can we talk about your diet for a second? Isn't that a strange place for him to go? Or is it? Well, what do these things seem to have in common? Well, there's a couple things here. Please hear me. First of all, did you notice that God loves vegetarians? How do I know that? Because they're on our menu. We should love vegetarians because we're supposed to eat them. That's one of the things he tells us here. Well, for what it's worth. I'll let that sink in for a moment. He says, there are certain things I don't want you to eat. Now, this is a much smaller list. If God were to be completely explicit about that menu, we could just say, well, let me refer back to Leviticus. But instead, he kind of points out some things here. He says, there are some animals. Well, let me put it this way, if I could. First of all, there are trash eaters. I don't want you with them. I don't want you eating them. Then there are bottom feeders. I don't want you eating them. Then there are death feeders. I don't want you eating them. And then there are predators. I don't want any of those things in you. And I get it. If you are unique for the purpose of seeing life brought to a dead world, if you are unique because you are loved by the Father, engulfed in His love, you are treasured, then don't live the life you lived before. See, these were the things that are eaten for quite simple purposes. One is for survival. Because the people who eat these things, they eat these things because there's nothing else to eat. Any of you ever think that anyone in the, in the universe looks at a vulture and goes, Ooh, tasty. A vulture looks ugly for a purpose. I'm not trying to be mean. I think God knows what he's doing when he makes whatever he makes. I mean, I was joking about it. I was, you, know, you watch those, like, the pigeons and the way they walk, like Mick Jagger, right? Moving like Jagger. And, and I look and I think, I bet when God was making one of those, he was kind of like, hey, you guys, check this out. Watch this. And then he makes this thing. Oh, check. Wait, wait till it walks. Wait, wait till it walks. Oh, oh, is that cool? I mean, I could just see God having fun as he makes things like that. Hey, but you know, you get to that point where you've seen it in those old cartoons where there are two guys on a boat and they start looking at each other and they look like a leg of lamb or something. And they're like, oh, you're looking good, all of us. It's, you know, it's like there is this place where there's this survival. A bat. Now, granted, we're aware of the fact that even part of the Ebola crisis has been very much because people were eating bad in Africa. We're aware of that now. But people are catching up with what God just said don't do here. Now, people traditionally, when they went to the toilet, they went, to go, they went and found either a big hole in the ground or running water. What's at the bottom of that running water? Mollusks. And what do they do? They collect the stuff that gathers at the bottom and they eat it. And then God says, I don't want you eating that. I get it. Now, today they raise clams. Today they raise oysters. And they're not going to probably be raised in your toilet. That's a good thing, by the way. I get that. Now, whether you eat them or not, the point is, is that when God said these things, he's like, look it, I don't want you eating these things that are dangerous to you. And whether it is out of survival or the other thing, because also you ate predators here, is that you ate things that you thought somehow you could get the power from them. That still happens, by the way, in India and in China and some other places in Asia. Where the idea is that they try to find something and they're like, if I could just eat that, I'll be like it. I think, well, that's kind of Okay. I don't want to be like a duck, but I do like duck. I don't want to be like a lamb, but I guess I am a sheep in the sense of my good shepherd, but just the same. 
But I understand if those were the primary things, remember, Israel's entering into Canaan, and that's the mindset of Canaan. The mindset of Canaan is we eat things to get their power, we drink their blood for that, and he says, don't go to that blood thing. That's what everybody else says. Don't go there. I don't want you chasing after that power. I'm power enough for everyone. And I don't want you living in a place of survival. I go, okay, wait a minute, I get it. Okay, look at God adopts you, and as he adopts you, he says, you're mine. I treasure you. I love you. I'm not neglectful. I am not uncaring. I'm not aloof. I'm not indifferent. I am enamored with you. I can't stop staring at you. Praise God. I'm like that way with my kids. Praise God they're my kids because it would look really weird because I can't stop staring at them. So good thing they're mine. And I go, oh man, I just, what a gift these children are. And I think about that. And I think, please don't live like you're an orphan when you've got this much love available to you. And if you live like an orphan, you live in a survival mindset. And when you live in a survival mindset, can I say it's the most selfish mindset you can get. You look for excuses to do whatever you want to do. If you're not actually trying to survive, but you you have to create a survival mindset. Well, I'm actually, this is my defect, and this is my problem, and this is my whatever. But once you get there, then you're like, you know what? I can use anyone. I could step on anyone. I could abuse whatever I want because I just have to live now. God's like, why would you do that here? I've adopted you and I've covered you in my love and you are my treasure. I treasure you. I mean, I treasure you. And if I treasure you, why would you want to live that way? So you want to go and hunt down that? Really? You want to try to get its power? What? Why do you need that kind of thing? What makes you think that if you ate a lion, you would be like a lion when the lion of the tribe of Judah is offered his life to you? It's like if you actually could rest because you don't have to fight this battle anymore. I'm your dad. I'll take care of it. It's my job to take care of it. And you're like, but isn't that a sign of weakness? Actually, it's a sign of strength. It's one of the greatest displays of strength is not fighting every battle because you don't have to. I mean, I knew having studied martial arts half my life. Well, now not half my life, but at least a, at least a third of it. I know what it's like to be in something and you're looking and go, you know, uh, we could get in this fight and this could be over really quickly, but out of wisdom, I think it would really just be dumb. I'm going to try to be the better man. So listen, I don't want you living a life like survival. So look, at this is what it looks like. You know, hey, how you doing? Well, I'm surviving. Really? As a Christian, that's what we're going to play? I'm surviving? Well, you know, I lived another... I'm living... I'm alive. Really? That's what you got? Now, understand, before we knew the Lord, all happiness comes from circumstances, like the word happening. It comes from the same word, happens. It's kind of like things at events, and, you know, anyways, talk about luck. And the idea of that is, is that things are good on a good day when good things are happening to me, and things are bad on a bad day when bad things happen. The problem is, is good and bad things happen every day. So I'm, how are you this moment? Well, this moment, someone was nice to me and smiled on the train and gave me their seat. It's a good moment. Oh, but then I missed the next train, so it's a bad day. Oh, but then I ate a really good meal. Oh, it's a good day. But it doesn't agree with me. It's a bad day. And the person next to him, it doesn't agree with him. It's a really bad day for me. And you get the idea that it's like the whole day is like this. We're like living on this roller coaster. People go, it's just like living on a lift or it's being a roller coaster. Not for a Christian because my whole life is not about happiness. It's about joy. And joy is Jesus. And because joy is Jesus, it doesn't have to be up and down because he doesn't change. So when people are like, how are, you, how are you doing today? Amazing. Crazy things are happening. People are being crazy or whatever. The government wants to kick you out or whatever. I don't care. I belong to Jesus. It's his battle to fight. Isn't that beautiful? People look and go, well, you obviously don't have anything different than I do because your life's as messed up as mine. I should have caught you at a better moment. You ever actually kind of feel someone out before you actually ask them? They're like, well, I don't really want to... How are you doing? Because it looks like they just might go, blah. You're kind of smiling. I'll ask you, how are you doing? And they go, it's survival. It's not for Christians. Thriving. That's what he says. And I start thinking, well, wait a minute. Is that the life I'm living now? Am I living this kind of life? Listen, listen, listen. This is what my life should look like now, according to what Jesus promised. John 10.10, 10, he told me that I should have abundant life. 
John 16.22 told me that I should have untakeable, overflowing joy. He says, then when I raise it again, I will give you a joy, and your joy no one can take from you. You get that? So don't tell me Satan stole your joy. In verse 24, it says, Until you have asked for nothing but ask in my name, you receive that your joy may be full. I have abundant life. I have untakeable, overflowing joy. According to Philippians 4, 6, 7 and Isaiah 26, 3, I have perfect peace that surpasses all understanding. And I have a hope that is an anchor to my soul. Hebrews 6, 19. So I have abundant life, untakeable, overflowing joy, perfect peace that surpasses all understanding and a hope that is an anchor to the soul. Exactly how is my life supposed to be up and down? He goes, hey, you know that other stuff? Leave that to the other people. If they're part of your family, that's not where it goes. Let the rest of the world have that. That's not for you. And that takes us to our last area. Verses 22 through the rest of the book, or the rest of the letter, chapter. Because I'm a child of the God of life, set apart to my Lord, chosen for a purpose, uniquely treasured, then I should view death differently. Should view it as a threshold, not a terminal. I should view life differently. It's a place to thrive. And if I really am such a child, then I should live like it. Verses 22 through the rest of this letter, 27, by the way, are to tell me that I should enjoy my dad and enjoy and serve my family. It's that simple. Notice, by the way, he uses the word tithe. And some of you now, especially if this is your first time here, are getting uncomfortable just with the word. So let me just say it. We never pass a hat, nor will, or a basket. Certainly nothing gold-lined or velvet-covered. There's a box in the back as God leads you to, tithe, to give. But listen, tithe means tenth. That's all it means. And God knew that unless he set it aside and told them from the beginning, they would get around to nothing. And he says, there's going to be a whole tribe of people that will be serving you. And I want to make sure you take care of them. But notice the tithe first and foremost here wasn't first for the Levites. Verse 22 says, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain and the produce the field, that the field produces each year. And notice it says in verse 22, You shall eat it where? You tell me, where? Before the Lord. Guess who wants to be able to eat it with you? That's the point. God's like, look, and I'm going to give you all this blessing, and you know what I want you to do? Come back and let's enjoy it together. I was never a big movie watcher before I got married. I was kind of always one of those kind of people that I just wanted to go out and do stuff. If I buy a movie at all now, I buy it for one purpose, to sit with someone I love and watch it. And usually to tend to my wife's shoulders and neck. And so when I, the worst thing I can happen, imagine if I just bought a movie, I'm like, hey, I know this is something you've been wanting to see. And they're like, oh, I can't wait to take it to my room and watch it by myself. I'd be like, that stinks. I didn't buy it for that purpose. I bought it so we could watch it together. I mean, granted, we're just kind of staring at the same wall together or whatever, but in the end of it, you're still next to me, and we can break into conversation in the middle of this, and you can tell me, shh, shh, but I'm just happy you're next to me because I don't get a lot of that as much as I used to. This is when I give you that produce, when I give you that increase. Can we have it together? Can we spend it together? Because, well, what if it's too far? You can't carry a sheep with you for 100 miles. Sell it. Make it to my house. I'll provide something else. And then can we be together again? Notice that's what it says in verse 26. Spend it on whatever your heart desires. Ox, sheep, wine, similar drink, or whatever your heart desires. You shall eat it again there before the Lord, your God. It says, and by the way, you shall rejoice with all your household. Did you notice that? And he goes on, by the way, Please don't forsake the Levite. Because, well, he doesn't get to buy houses like you do. He's not supposed to be doing that. Instead, he's supposed to be giving himself over to make sure that your eyes are on eternity. And I don't want him caught up in all of those things. And I don't want him caught up in so much of that that he doesn't get time to really focus where he needs to on you. So, 
Here's the idea. Every third year, you take that tithe and you tuck it into your city so that the Levite, the stranger, the widow, the orphan, anybody that needs it can go and get it. So they don't have to go and ask you for it. So they don't have to be in such a situation that it's humbling and embarrassing to them. I want them to be able to have it so they can simply go and get it. So not just my servants, but also the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. I want them all taken care of. I don't want anybody in my household in need. There's the point. So listen, as we bring this to close and pray, this is what it looks like. It starts with this. And notice, the point is really simple. If you don't understand who you are, it will never, well, it'll never impact you like it should. You know, I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. I'm not going to hell. That's it. You really think this is about something like a business merger? You brought yourself into a new government? Marriage shouldn't be that way, nor should adoption. Those are relationships. They are chosen, pursued relationships for the intent of fellowship. Would you agree? And God invented those so that we could understand his heart for us. The end of 2 Corinthians, it says something beautiful when it talks about it. It says the love of God, the gift of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. And I get it. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to draw you to intimacy. Jesus is the gift. The Father is the giver. And that's the whole point as we bring this to close. Let me ask you, for those of you who actually make claim to Christ today, do you really get who you are? Because, you know, the enemy would really love for you to think more of who you were, which you, you, know, you can't change except recovering in the blood of Christ. So what are you? Addict? Weak, empty, frail, insecure, jealous, rageful, violent, gossip, floozy. Are you blessed? Are you living like an orphan when you've been adopted by the King of Kings? Are you feeling like somehow you have to earn love from the person who pursued you when you were still actually his enemy? Are you trying to gain what God wants to give you and you're trying to earn it? Well, no wonder why you're exhausted. No wonder why this life isn't that abundant life that he promised because you're actually not getting the one he offered. Beloved, listen. If we could walk out of here today going, you know what, you're right. The Bible makes clear this is who I am. And I should start living like it. And when you've got a good father, you can rest and feel safe. I don't know if my children have ever felt unsafe. I pray not. But I'd rather die than watch them injured. And I would gladly step in front of whatever I need to step in front of. But a good father is going to make you feel safe and not feel like, well, I wonder if I'll ever eat again. I wonder if I'll have a place. I wonder if there's forgiveness. Who are we making God out to be? This God wants you so bad that he would let his own son die. And praise God, he's God and not me because I would never let my kids die for you. And I love you. I just don't love you that much. He does. And he let his son die on the cross so that we could be his. And he loves us just as much as him. But he's also made us holy, set us apart because of that. And then he's chosen us for purpose. And in that purpose, you're treasured because you are going to impact this world in a way that human beings can't and only God can. So, with that in mind, let me ask you again, how do you view death? What death is most important? How do you view life? Is it to survive or thrive? And how do you view each other? Are we family? If we're family, we should treat each other like it. Enjoy our dad and come together and greet each other and love each other as God calls us to. Now, brothers and sisters are not without problems with each other, but they work them out. Now, I'm not saying that because I see or sense anything. I'm saying that because God is laying that in our hearts even right now in the text. To say, hey man, make sure that people are taken care of. 
Don't overlook a person in need, but rather, if you notice it, it may very well be because God wants to use you. So as we go to prayer, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, and I will go to us second on that, so that we can all be there, the first thing I want to ask is that we could be in a place where we could actually today embrace just the truth of who we are. And say, well, if, if I could really, if my heart could grab these things, then, then can I view things differently and act differently? Why do I have to be busy trying to take care of myself when I know that's my father's job? I actually want to be busy serving you. But if you've not accepted that gift or you're not sure that you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you can walk out of here, sure, because I'm giving you that choice now. As we go to prayer, the Bible tells us if you're willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your orphanhood. Saved from the guilt that we have rightly earned in our own rebellion that festers and mounts up like volcanoes in our hearts. And today... God says, I've paid the price. I'm just asking for a yes. Can I make you mine? Can I say, I'm calling you by name. You're mine. For that, that's for your choice now. Will you pray with me? Lord, I recognize right now in each of us that your Holy Spirit's at work. And as your Holy Spirit is at work, you want today to revolutionize our hearts. You want to speak in such a way right now to say, where are we with this? Are we really embracing the offers that you're laying before us? Or are we just sort of intellectually agreeing? I recognize today that procrastination is still no. I recognize today that the offer is here what we're saying yes or no to is your love. And so, Lord, if there be any or many within the sound of this voice that want to say yes to you today, and I pray your word would have its work, your spirit would have his way, and we'd respond. And I'm going to pray a prayer, beloved, and I want you to listen. And if you agree with it, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. All right, that's my prayer. I'm saying yes to that. And that's why I want you to listen so you know what it is you'd say yes to. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, you present yourself like a father who wants to adopt. And you call out my name to say yes to you. I may not understand everything, but I understand this much. If you really love me that much and you want me and you're willing to pay the price with your own son, I want to say yes to you. But I may be afraid and I don't understand it, but I, what I do understand, I know what I'm responsible for right now. And I know you paid my price by sending your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross for me. And as he died on the cross for me, my price was paid. My guilt was punished. All the crimes of my heart vanquished. The bill was paid. And as you rose from the dead, you offer me a new life. A new life with you as my Father, Jesus as my love and life. But that's the choice you leave me. You've given me the option and opportunity. And I just want you to know I say yes. I say yes to that gift of Jesus. Yes for the cleansing of the price He paid. Yes, of your, adopt, your adopting love. Yes, for you to call me yours and for you to make me everything you desire to make me as you draw me into this family. So I say yes. Jesus, be my Lord, be my Savior. God, be my Father now as I give my life to you in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to give a resounding and confident Amen. Lord, as well today, I pray for every person who has said yes to you, be it right now or be it many years ago, that we would, in our very beings, in our spirit, in our heart, embrace who we are in you. That we would see life differently. A place where you intend for us to thrive and in doing so shine like lights to this world. We would view death differently. 
not just the person who may cash in their bodies, but the eternity of a relationship with you, that that would be our passion. And that we would view each other differently as the family you ordain. We would love each other, serve each other, as you call us to. So, Father, because we are yours as your children, because you have called us and set us apart with a unique calling, because you've chosen us for your family business, now our family business, and treasured us because of the impact you're going to make now. Use us in whatever way you call us to, we pray. We're yours, and thank you for the privilege of being able to walk with you, knowing that for eternity we are part of this family. We're yours. Thank you for that. By the power of your Spirit, now do through us, Lord, what we can't humanly do, and in that, change this world. Bring more into this family. In Jesus' name, amen.